Welcome to the 52nd episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvargan from her mountain fortress in Colorado, my co-host with the most, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Hello there, everyone. If you're a fan of science fiction or if you're a climate activist or policymaker concerned about our common future, you probably know today's guest, Kim Stanley Robinson. Stan's a best-selling author of 21 science fiction novels. His last, The Ministry for the Future, has been widely read as both a story and a plan for surviving the climate emergency over the next half century. It also inspired a recent profile in The New Yorker magazine. A number of his books have ocean themes and settings ranging from New York to California to many light years beyond Earth. His next book, coming out this summer, is a nonfiction tribute to where he spent much of his life. It's titled High Sierra, A Love Story. I'd like to think it's companion to my book, The Golden Shore, California's Love Affair with the Sea. With so much to love and so much at risk on our blue planet, just like to welcome you, Stan, and uh, appreciate your being with us today. Well, thank you, David, and hi, Vicki. It's good to be with you all. Um, and it's fun to think about talking about the oceans, even though I, um, the High Sierra has been my home most of my adult life. I grew up um, next to the beach and in the ocean, and it was extremely important to me when I was young. So it's good to talk about it. And I just finished your, your novel, New York 2140, and really enjoyed it. And I especially loved those rambunctious kids who'd love to go underwater and they risked their lives. It was so fun. But it was also incredible thinking about a 50 feet sea level rise and what life would be like in that environment. So tell me a little bit more about that book. I thought it was so fascinating. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I wanted to write about global finance and how it's out of whack with the with our uh, biosphere and our relationship to our biosphere, how it misprices things and misvalues things and is part of our problem. Well, my editor was none too pleased with that notion being so abstract. And finally, he said, Stan, why don't you put it in New York? I had had a brief visit to a drowned New York in a book called 2312. 300 years from now, 50-foot sea level rise is not, is not completely... Uh, impossible to imagine, but um, in this case, I wanted it to be near enough to now to uh, be relevant to our current situation. And so I picked a date, 2140, to allow as much time as possible for oceans to rise without actually getting too far away from the present. So that was a weird um, uh, double pressure from both sides. And as to that much sea level rise, it's a lot. If all the ice on the planet were to melt, it would be about a 270-foot sea level rise. But there's such an incredible mass of it stacked on eastern Antarctica that that isn't very likely to happen. And even in the rapid melting that we're seeing, the worst-case scenarios are really less than 50 feet by 2140. But I want to say this. James Hansen, while I was writing the book, he published a paper showing that making the case that 128,000 years ago uh, temperatures rose about as much as they've risen in the last century, and sea level rose by about 30 to 50 feet in 100 years. So I saw that article and I was like, oh my gosh. And the article has been contested. It, you have to, it's a complicated case that Hansen and his team made. He had 17 co-authors, if I remember right. But it, the idea is this. A lot of that ice in Antarctica is perched and could easily slide into the sea, at which point it displaces exactly the same amount it's going to when it melts. 
and that's perched blocked on these tiny little uh, rims of underwater ridges that in his article he called them the buttress of the buttress and uh, a little slippage there and suddenly you've got a very rapid pulse I called them in the novel so I, I don't want to go too, too long about um, science fiction justifications. It's almost a case of hand-waving, but there's a bit of data behind it. And what I wanted to show was lower Manhattan underwater. And indeed, you need pretty significant sea level rise to get the conditions that I wanted, where a lot of the lower Manhattan was um, like Venice. And then there's an intertidal zone, as you read about, where at high tide, it's covered by water. At low tide, it's, it's exposed, just like on any other beach. What I liked... Uh in 2140 is as a sort of lower Manhattan Venice goes into funky chic, the real estate speculators come in and gentrification becomes a problem. And the realities of today integrated into the realities of tomorrow is really what I like about this. I mean, I was working in Antarctica and reading your novel Antarctica. And while I never slid through an ice cave into a subterranean uh, hot tub, uh, there was a hot tub, there were ice caves, there were whales in the harbor. And you, you did get an amazing feel for a place that's still not only wilderness, but it's kind of, you know, you save what you love and you expressed um, love just like with your book in New York that those Huck Finn kids were lovable. So I think, you you know, your characters are in some ways underrated, the fact that uh, they're in spectacular places having a good time. Well, thank you for that. I do, uh, as a novelist, the, the, the bedrock anchoring point for novels is characters. Um, I believe in my characters. I like them. I do. Uh, I, I focus on characterization. The, the other stuff in my novels tends to get the attention, but not always. I would say that the Mars trilogy is um, uh, at least as famous for its gang of characters that live so long and do so much as it is for the terraforming of Mars, which is a, that's a, something that I quite uh, enjoy seeing in, in reader responses. Well, you definitely bring in your characters, but you also bring in place. And living in Colorado, I was intrigued by the number of times that you mentioned Denver in, uh, in your New York book. And I wanted to know why that was always a reference to you. Well, it was a bit of a joke, but also sea level rise is not going to bother Denver. And, it, you know, it's at 5,000. It's famous as the Mile High City. And um, I've only spent a couple of days of my life in Denver, but it reminded me of Orange County where I grew up in what I would say is not a good way uh, it for being kind of uh, suburban and boring. I mean, compared to Manhattan. So it was a bit of a joke in the novel, the, a kind of joke you get from New Yorkers when they, like in that famous cartoon where they look across the Hudson and in the distance is the is the Pacific and the entirety of the United States is this little strip of land that's not as big as Manhattan. That's, that's kind of how they see things from there. And what I wanted to go back to the, your Mars trilogy, uh, more recently you wrote a book because everybody, every tech billionaire now has a penis-shaped rocket ship to go off into space and leave us behind. It was one of the big themes of this movie, Don't Look Up. But your Mars trilogy, where you terraform Mars and make it habitable, you, I wouldn't call it a repudiation, but you, you take a different perspective in Aurora, where you kind of conclude that other planets aren't habitable, that we're on the planet made for us. And what I really liked about it, at the end, 
these space travelers who've never really lived back on the mother planet kind of reconnect through body surfing. I, I wonder what, what ended up as with body surfing as your salvation at the end of that book. Well, immersion, it was a great uh, image for rebirth uh, for Freya. Um, I uh, grew up in Orange, California, so our beach was Newport Beach, uh, Corona del Mar, Huntington Beach, and sometimes Laguna and San Clemente, all the Orange County beaches. But for body surfing purposes, Newport Beach at 15th Street and 40th Street were they had the best breaks and they were easy to get to with good parking close to us. So that became our default beach. And I spent um, years of my life in the ocean body surfing and I had three near drowning experiences because the ocean is, a, is a strong and can indeed kill you if you do something stupid, which I did three times and managed to survive. My brother Chris, uh, three years younger, he was even more into it than I was, which is saying a lot. And he moved to the North Shore of Hawaii in order to, of Oahu, in order to ride waves all the time, and is literally one of the six best body surfers on earth, as judged by the body surfing contests over on the North Shore. Um, I mean, at this point, he's aged out. That's a young person's sport. He still rides raves almost every day over there, um, but not in the competitive contests that he did back in his 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. So, um, yeah, the ocean's a big part of our life. And so then Freya come back to Earth. Um, it's But this time in that novel, it's like the year 2,935 or maybe it's 2835. In any case, a very distant future for me, but it was the year that I needed to have the planets in the right configuration to slow down my spaceship. And there they are on Earth, and it's a raised sea level to the point where the beaches are all gone. They're simply underwater, and they're resuscitating them in a giant act of landscape restoration, um, dredging sand out that's offshore that's still down there, um, and putting it in making new beaches. So they're building beaches as a terraforming act right there on Earth. So it was perfect. And I had Freya go out and her her near drowning experience closely models one of mine. I certainly know what it feels like to, to get caught in, in surf so intense that you can't get to the surface to breathe. So Stan, you write extensively about climate change, sea level rise, the future, what the future could be. In a way, you write kind of like a utopian science fiction, and you have been quoted as saying you like to give your readers an image of what we are heading towards. Tell us more about that and how you were thinking um, with those two frameworks. Well, I, I have been a science fiction writer my whole career. I was attracted to it the moment I ran into it as a college student, and what I think attracted me was I came from Orange County when I was a kid. It was actually orange groves. And uh, as I grew up, I watched the orange groves get torn out and replaced by the concrete monster that is there now. So when I ran into science fiction, I thought, well, this is a, a realism. This is how things really feel. It has to do with feelings, not um, literal history, obviously, because you're talking about the future as a, a space that... Is, uh, captures the feeling of living right now with everything changing so fast. So that being the case, I've since come to believe that there's two things going on in science fiction. One, you really do try to talk about the future 
in order to influence the way that we look at what we're doing right now. And then the other part of science fiction is, is a feeling that you have uh, expressed through these symbols like rockets or you know time is speeding up or I'm turning into a robot. These are metaphors. So the two parts of science fiction combine together very powerfully and it makes a it, it makes the form of literature that I find most expressive. And so I've been calling it the realism of our time because now we are in climate change. Things are changing already. There will be sea level rise in to degrees that I find frightening because I do love beaches and they're right at sea level, so they are in terrible trouble. In fact, I, I just wrote about that recently for Bloomberg Green, the column I do for that. It's not out yet, but it's about sea level rise and trying to stabilize it. Sea level rise is certainly a, a risk here in California. There's a USGS report that says 150,000 people could be displaced by mid-century. Um, a lot of science fiction looking at climate is kind of dystopic. You know, it's like Blade Runner. We're in a horrible future. Um, you're offering the science-based horror, but also solutions. Where, where do you go to kind of get that inspiration? Well, I, I, a lot of it comes from my reading, and I'm on the hunt for best case scenarios and four solutions. So this is part of the work of being a utopian science fiction writer. So it's the same literature everybody else reads, but I'm trolling in my mind when I see something that seems promising. It snags and I often write about it. So I read um, Science News, Nature Briefing, that it comes daily as an email. Society for Environmental Journalists sends a daily email. Um, EOS, the magazine of the American Geophysical Union is a superb magazine and solution-based often, their articles. So it's not hard to find possible solutions. What's hard is to turn them into a story that isn't just a kind of a technical manual, um, a walk-through solutions like you, without any plot. You have to figure out a plot where they get included and described. And then also um, sort out which ones, because there's so many, which one would make a good story and make a compelling case that we could actually get a best case scenario that's quite good. So yes, it's a, a whole lot of reading, which I find fun. Just just yesterday, and it's funny given we're doing this podcast, I ran into an article in EOS about uh, pipes being in the areas of the tropic where the ocean surface is 20 degrees warmer than down in the depths far below. You can run a pipe and pump water to the surface and the differential in temperature between the bottom water and the top water is enough to drive a turbine. Part of that electricity is used for the pumps to pump up the water. The other electricity could serve an island nation that is otherwise um, delivering diesel fuel for these small island nations. So terribly dirty, terribly expensive. One pumping station could give them enough kilowatts to not only electrify their houses, but also have a, a tiny little areas where they could grow lobsters in the tropic because of the cold water being brought to the surface. Yeah, OTEC, Ocean Thermal Energy Conversion. Yeah, exactly. And in Hawaii, they did a, a test plant. It worked fine. It generated power. And then the state pulled the plug and built another diesel plant. So it's, it's almost frustrating because we know what the solutions are. It's the political will to enact them. Well, the, the thing is that, of course, but what's the plot there? I mean, a, a, a novel is not the space to talk about a technological innovation in and of it by itself. So that's why the Ministry for the Future is a kind of a tapestry of possible solutions, obvious problems, and also the macro story 
how are we going to pay for all this stuff? Because those um, ocean thermal energy conversion plants are expensive as an initial investment. But if you were getting paid in carbon coins and you um, checked out how much diesel fuel would not be burned by building that plant and paid the makers of the plant accordingly, then they might make money or they wouldn't lose money in order to invest like that. So you're right. It's government, it's finance, it's technology, it's people on the ground and the island nations I guess you could have a, a short story. This is where I think solar punk, which is a stupid name for a good genre, let's just call it utopian science fiction. Um, it ought to be, um, the short stories ought to be about things like this, where you have perhaps the, the, the story of someone, some island managing to develop it, all the secondary and tertiary ramifications. Uh, once you have 15,000 of them scattered around the earth, you kind of begin to disturb the, the ocean's thermal balance in ways that would be worth testing the limits on because it's such a good, clean energy. Um, but it is part of the game, too, that there's a natural limit on how many you could build before you begin to disrupt the actual thermal layers of the ocean, which is a rather awesome thought. You have mentioned that doomism <clears throat> is not appropriate. And uh, so a lot of your books have this positive energy. And so I was just curious, um, with all of your books and all of the science that you integrated with policy, are policymakers integrating any or some of your visions? Well, yes, but no. What I want to say is that I'm more of a reporter than I am a visionary. And almost everything that I've written about it turns out that I was behind the curve of what really is going on in the world, and the world is just too big to keep track of. So in Ministry for the Future, for instance, the carbon coin is indeed being picked up by the central banks, and they were working on that even before my book came out, but I didn't know it. And now it looks like I've been prophetic, whereas actually I was a little off the curve. That happens a lot. Um, there are good glaciologist plans for sucking water out from an, underneath the glaciers, and things like that keep on happening. Um, but now, Ministry for the Future as an idea is a powerful idea, I can tell. Because like Oxford University is starting up a Ministry for the Future project, and there are various um, study groups and institutes that are saying, let's use that phrase to talk about the defense of future generations and of, and of wildlife. So it, it's... And indeed, this is another thing to add. The Ministry for the Future was a phrase given to me by the Cultural Museum in Barcelona in 2017. They designated Timothy Morton, the philosopher, to be the Minister for the Future for that one conference. And they said to me when they were interviewing me, you should write about a Ministry for the Future. And I, I left that conference thinking, good idea. So even that is not my phrase, uh, but it is a it is a powerful phrase. People are responding very well to it. Now, you may have heard of this one. I had not. It blew my mind. There's only 1% as many whales as there used to be after the century of the the death, the genocide of the whales, as you might call it. So you're going to talk about how whale poop can save the planet. Yeah, I am. I am. Whale poop can save the planet. And this was new to me. And as I said, I thought you might know about it. And I don't know what to make of it. It's brand new to me. But I like it better than iron filings. Um, it seems more organic and natural and replacing something that we took away. I don't know. What do you think of that plan? This is part of the whole blue carbon initiative, which is, you know, there's so much 
in the ocean from seaweeds to sea grasses to algaes to everything in the food web from krill to uh, krill with their fecal strings to uh, great blue whales with their um, who absorb and die and take it to the bottom. And uh, yeah, and we actually know how to restore whales. I just spoke with Congressman Huffman, who's an advocate for blue carbon and kelp restoration. He, he agrees with you. He says, you know, it's like growing whales is a lot smarter than dumping iron pellets in the ocean. And all the geoengineering, he says, is probably going to have, you know, unimaginable and unpredictable consequences. Um, right. The challenge is how do we grow more kelp when we lose 95% of it north of the Golden Gate to uh, climate impacts we're already experiencing? So it, it becomes a race between restoration and decimation. Yes. Well, I'm so glad. Uh, see, this is the kind of thing that's now happening to me. I can um, see links between groups that either they did know about it, like you in this case, or they didn't know. And um, I can serve as a node in a, in a network and, and pass along information to people who have expertise, people who have institutional heft. And then things get done in a way that is more than a novelist can um, do just by writing a story. So um, it's been it's been a really uh, interesting and crazy year and a half since Ministry for the Future came out. But more and more, I'm getting I'm, I'm getting my feet under me again because it kind of blew me away. And I, as a novelist, I said I'm not a public intellectual. So what do I do as a novelist? What do I say? What do I? What's my praxis? What do I do? And now I see, I just keep talking and meeting with people and then connecting them up with other people with expertise. So that has been, yeah, very cool. I was just thinking as we were talking about blue carbon and ocean farming, and obviously we know about regenerative farming on land, but I think you're right, getting the farmers connected up with the oceans, making that connection. And we just launched an ocean-friendly farming program at the Inland Ocean Coalition. And it's really looking at land and sea and those solutions so we can move forward. And, and that kind of just leads me into my next question I have for you. And it's another policy question. And we know that President Biden has really taken on climate change as one of his big top priorities. And since you've been following so many of these climate discussions, I was wanting to get a sense on how you feel about how we are moving as a nation <clears throat> towards addressing some of these uh, sea level rise and climate problems that we're all dealing with. I've been impressed by the Biden administration. They're better on climate than they needed to be to get the political job done that they were faced with after the disruption of the previous four years. They could have focused on um, other kinds of healing that didn't have to do specifically with climate, but I, I have the strong impression that this is a, a brain trust, like in the FDR days, um, that has um, great expertise and judgment. That doesn't mean that it can happen, and compromises always occur in D.C. so that um, you can see that they're getting bogged down by by war of Russia, et cetera, et cetera. The, there were many things to slow the program down, but I like the way they started, and I wish them the best of luck. We've It's on the table now as one of the biggest um, problems facing us in a way that it's never been before, and that's really important, that the story of the 21st century is going to be the story of dealing with climate change. That's well understood now. Um, compared to any earlier time. 
So I'm impressed and pleased by that. What I worry about is people are going to give up or, or, real, or think, well, it's, it, it's, it's already game over. Why not just party? But it's never really game over. You always just have to keep doing the work from the point of, that you're at. And um, we'll just see what's going on, what, what happens going forward. I mean, the challenges just become more challenging. When they, when they talk about CDR, carbon dioxide removal, that's kind of an admission of failure, which is basically the science says we're now at the point where we can't stay to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is the difference between dangerous and catastrophic future, without actually removing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So it's, you know all the failures since the 1970s or since I covered the Earth Summit in Rio in 92 um, have gotten us to the point where just reducing our emissions is no longer enough. And we're going to have to, as you say, we're going to have to breed more whales and, and more man, you know, restore mangroves and shift to regenerative farming. And all these challenges are real. What's nice is a lot of them show up in, in your work. I mean, we have what we call the blue beat. The idea that the only uh, resource in the ocean not fully exploited is good storytelling. <laughs> I know that under the Biden administration, he's got the initiative 30 by 30, how we can protect, how can we protect 30% of land and 30% of the ocean by 2030? Yes. And I, because we're talking about oceans here too, keeping areas of the ocean free from fishing fleets and from ships in general is relatively easy to do for pretty vast tracks. And what's interesting is that satellite, with satellite photography, you can tell when there's incursions. And in this modern world, uh, between seeing miscreants who are out of their zones, essentially landscape or seascape pirates, uh, and between that and, and drones and um, autonomous vehicles, you could in, indeed disable. You don't have to, um, uh, break these boats, sink them, and drown their crews. You could disable them and just tow them away on in with remarkable fashion. So, in other words, an ocean police is possible. You in a way that maybe on land it's harder, but at sea because of satellite photography, you can see what's going on and try to keep the extinctions from happening in the ocean. It would be so important for all of us. So I'm I'm hopeful. This thirty by thirty scheme I met. Jennifer Norris, who is the head of California's 30 by 30 program. And she said to me very memorably, what people like to see in programs like this is that whatever they're doing, their little project fits into a larger project, like a brick into a wall. And the wall helps to make you think that your brick is also important because you're building something bigger than yourself. And that solidarity with others, that kind of mutual aid and sense of a larger project than what you can possibly do yourself. It keeps people from despairing. It keeps them hopeful and working on their, their part of the project. They put their shoulder to the wheel in a different metaphor and they, and they go ahead and give it their push in a feeling like I'm part of something bigger. So 30 by 30 programs are crucial that way. She said California is already to about 24%, uh, which is amazing and, and beautiful. I don't know if this is your first nonfiction, but I know it's, it's close to your heart. Tell us a little about uh, Sarah Love Story. Yeah, sure. All my life I've been going up there since I was 21. And uh, for about 30 years now, I've been thinking, I want to write about this. I'm a writer. I'm having this experience. It adds up. It has added up to perhaps a month per year on average, uh, scattered into three or four or five smaller trips. I've never been able to spend much time at one single shot up there. 
it's been a place to go to, backpack for a few days to a week or sometimes even a little bit longer and then go home. Well, it, it wasn't obvious how to write about it. I'm not a nonfiction writer. I found myself incredibly disoriented without a plot and a narrator, a narrative voice that isn't me. Because when I write my novels, I am pretending to be the narrator of those books and I take on a particular character. Like, you read Antarctica. That's a very jazzy, fast-paced American narrator. It comes after the Mars Trilogy, which is a very stern and formal narrator, a very um, different tone. And and I'll, one would hope that they that the reader would feel the differences in the narrators. So that being said, when I was writing in my own voice about the Sierras, I was very confused as to how to do it. And um, but I figured it out this way: it is there's a strand of memoir, there's a strand of geology, there's a strand of history, human history, and there's a strand of wildlife. And so I just mixed it up, and uh, I I braided it together uh, like a, a weaving. And then I have this book with uh, many chapters, perhaps 75 chapters, and they, they have different uh, topics or subjects, with the, the memoir being chronological, starting with my first trip and going through to the present. That's the through line to this book. That's how I figured out how to structure it. And I'm happy. Um, it was strangely hard. The first draft just poured out of me. In a couple of months, I wrote hundreds of pages. It was during the pandemic. And then revising it turned out to be one of the hardest things I've ever done. But now I'm done. I'm happy with it. And we'll see. It comes out in May. So I'll, I'll be interested to see what people make of it. That'd be very exciting. And, and strange, too, because we're all sort of living in this time. It's like watching geology on amphetamine. I mean, the changes yeah. are so rapid in places that seem um, where time should be immemorial, like the the granite yes. peaks of the Sierras or the coastline of California. Well, that's very true, David. I the Near the end of the book, I write about going up uh, to a high canyon in the Sierras where the map shows there's seven glaciers, seven little ones, and finding all of them gone, but the last portion of one. And I mean truly gone because was, it was desiccated. It was late September. There was no snow. There was no ice. These glaciers were simply gone. They had melted away. And we saw them in 27. Uh, 2007, they were there. So that was one of the biggest shocks of my life. I can say that quite honestly. And we were, we kind of staggered out of that trip thinking, damn, um, it's happening faster than we thought. And like you say, geology on steroids, although of course glaciers come and go. But when you say come and go in casual terms, you would say, you know, 500 years on and 10,000 years off and then a thousand years on. That's the kind of speed you're talking about when you talk about come and go when it comes to ice. And yet here, something that had been there 15 years ago was gone and is not coming back in my lifetime. That's for damn sure. It will be hundreds of years before glaciers come back into that little section. And we will have had to change everything. We will have had to suck down, get back to 350 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere, maybe 280 parts per million. If we begin to get a grip on our problem to that extent, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere will be a negotiated process. It will be a treaty agreement of the various par uh, parties involved, human parties speaking for the wild animals, what would be best going forward, and it'll be an ongoing experiment. That will be a success moment, even though it will be completely weird and totally Anthropocene, that we're basically at the thermostat 
having an argument about where to set the temperature. What we're doing with our money and our financing, and we, you brought this up in the beginning, is that we're basically using our money towards destruction. And unless we really change our economic system, so we're not paying to do the wrong thing, but we're paying to do the right thing, I, I don't know how we are ever going to do that. And, and why don't you jump off on that? Because I know that's something very important to you. Yes, thank you for that. This is sort of the central idea of ministry for the future. And I think it's why the book, one of the one of three or four most important reasons why the book has had the good reception it has. People are excited at the idea that you could, even in this economic system, get paid to do the right thing by the biosphere rather than paid to do the wrong thing and exploit it. And it's a pretty simple flip, and it has to do again with quantitative easing. The central banks make up new money, like they do all the time, but in this case, they make it up and pay it out for decarbonizing projects first. So it's car it's carbon CQE, carbon quantitative easing. And the central banks would then have to make a decision. We're not just neutral. We make up money, we keep a level play playing field, and people decide what they want to do with that money, they will actually have to be activists as if they were engaged uh, in a kind of a war. Because say in World War II, money was directed to winning the war. Now money has to be directed to saving the biosphere. And that starts with right at the source with, the, with government, with the state, with central banks and the creation of money in the first place. Well, luckily, the central banks are looking at this idea. It's not just an idea in a science fiction novel. The Network for Greening the Financial System is a website you can look at. It's 89 central banks. It's a study group. And they've got white papers that describe things that are like the carbon coin. And it's coming right out of the think tanks that are the central banks, out of those economists and those financial theorists. So uh, uh, it's a moment of hope because if we could actually get governments to direct their, their central banks to say, yes, do that, let's decarbonize. And it's sort of a version of the Green New Deal. But in fact, the Green New Deal has stalled. The money that was created after the pandemic to save us from the pandemic, way less of it went to green projects than you would want to have happened. So we have to do better somehow. Yeah, and I think what's important in your in your novel is that the bankers don't respond out of their goodness of their hearts or their intellectual realizations. They respond to huge bottom-up pressure, which was one of my moments covering the Earth Summit in 1992 was a march at night with 30,000 people out of the favelas and global activists led by Buddhist monks with a banner reading, when the people lead, the leaders will follow. And I think your, your identification of popular mobilization as a driver of policy um, is also something different in, in science fiction. It's usually this is a, you know, um, hero, mostly white guys, you know, controlling machines. And yours much more about social movements. And when you think about the future of the next, the work of the human endeavor for the next century and centuries is, is ecosystem restoration. And people don't have an image of what that looks like. And that's the value of the kind of stories you tell. Well, thank you for that. I do think that's an interesting new story uh, and kind of a beautiful one. The, the Gaia is so robust, the biosphere is so robust that if you don't drive things to extinctions, you give them a break, they will come back. So this work of restoring the biomes of the earth to health is good work because in some ways we just got to get out of the way. 
Sometimes you can provide some artificial whale poop at the surface and that helps to prime the pump. But by and large, if we get out of the way, things that haven't gone extinct will come back. It will be slightly different. It'll be mongrelized by the way we've moved all these species around the earth so intensely. It won't come back the same way as it would before, but it will come back to a health of its own that is new. And in the oceans, because of freedom of action and the way that the ocean creatures tend to um, be wide-ranging, um, that health could spread fast and spread wide. So, yes, it's a... And how many stories tell this? As you say, there's so many stories with uh, car crashes or divorces or the the petty concerns of individual uh, middle-class people. The literature spent way too much time telling those stories and not telling the big, exciting stories of of saving the earth without having, as you said, some white guy with a gigantic rocket flying in to save the day with a techno silver bullet. It's not going to work that way. It's more like gardening, which obviously is problematic when you say, oh, I'm going to write an exciting novel about gardening. One shudders, but when it's the earth you're gardening, um, it gets more interesting. Stan, thank you so very much for being here with us on the Rising Tide Ocean podcast. We love your books, we love your enthusiasm, your optimism, and we are certainly looking forward to your next one. Well, thank you, Vicki, and thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helbarg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by Studio Kate May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast, at www.bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true. It's the blue frontier, tear, tear, off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.